You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Alas. <laughs> I should at say, long wait. At, at last, not alas. <laughs> at last. It, I know it's the middle of the month, uh, but it is, it is time today to get into searching the scriptures in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Joining us today, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Thank you. Great to be back. It is good to be back and to see you here in the person. I know you've been traveling, um, so it's good to see you here in the flesh and ready to uh, study God's Word today. Indeed. Uh, an apology to the to your listeners out there who are waiting for this. Uh, I was gone last week doing additional studies, so it's good to be back Ooh. in the office here in the studio with you talking and going over the scriptures. A pastor who's doing studies. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. It happens occasionally. Like pastors it. who study. <laughs> All right, we are in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. I noticed there were lots of interesting, let's see, comparisons in this month's issue. Is that a yeah. is that a fair word to use? Yeah, so we did a similar issue to this in February. People really, really liked it. And that was, we we talked about Luther, the Lutheran Confession in relation to other world religions. In the October issue, this month's issue, we actually look at the Lutheran Confession as it compares to other Christian denominations. And so we basically... I mean, I highly recommend people if you if you you know this is one of the issues you should have on hand of the Lutheran witness. We go through and we explain of, of these. I think there's twelve denominations. Here's their basic history, their core fundamental beliefs, their foundational documents, and then what do we as Lutherans confess about those teachings, and and how does it relate to Lutheran doctrine? And I actually found some very I learned some things. We actually wrote it all internally here with our staff in the communications department. So they did some, the other writers did some excellent work. I learned some some fantastic things and and we've had a great response so far to it. So do get a chance, if you don't have a chance, pick up a copy. Or if you don't have one, pick up a copy. Yeah, it's very interesting. I like reading through a lot because we learned we learn some of the stuff in catechism, but for many of us, catechism was a long time ago. So this is it's a nice refresher and an easy guide to to those comparisons. So what is the the searching the scripture feature on this month? So this month we are talking about and picking up the Christian life and what does the Christian life look like as a consequence of, of our of our new walk that we have in Christ Jesus. And so we move from, you know, ongoing catechesis to then what does it mean to be an imitator of God as beloved children? All right. So we are continuing in Ephesians. Are we ready to go on to question one? I think so. Read Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. How do these verses summarize the preceding section, and what does this teach us about law and gospel? So, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, how does this summarize the preceding section? These verses actually really probably belong, or we probably should have done these verses last month. They really belong with that previous section. And you can see that when he indicates kind of with the therefore, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the conclusion to the preceding section, which is itself a conclusion to the section before that. So it all <laughs> ties into Ephesians chapter 4, verses kind of 17 
through 32. So therefore brings all this together. And the predominant score that he has in this section is really that of walking, right? So, you know, he verse chapter 4, verse 1, he says, he urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, right? And then in verse 17, don't walk as the Gentiles do, right? And then in verse 25, speak the truth with your neighbor, right? And then finally, chapter 5, verse 2, walk... Um, walk in love, right, as imitators of God. So this idea of kind of walking, your walk as a Christian has changed. You don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their hearts, focused on their own passions and desires. Rather, you are to walk in love. And what does this love look like? Well, it's the love of God and the love of God for mankind, right? Be imitators of God. And what did God do? He sent his son who gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to so living in, in love and service to the neighbor. And, and that that fragrant offering and sacrifice that Christ makes is itself that which then moves and drives the rest of this chapter and the rest of this book, and then really our life together as the people of God in Christ Jesus. Because he died for us, loved us, and died for us, we also then serve and love our neighbor. So this this verse, while it belongs with the preceding section, it's also the natural hinge from this teaching on the new life into what does this new life look like? How is this lived out and walked in, in that sense? And then, of course, the language of fragrant offering and sacrifice brings us, you know, Old Testament sacrifices. Christ is that sacrifice, the pleasing aroma to God that tones for our sins. All right. Question two. Yep. Let's do it. Read Ephesians 5, verse 3. Why must these sins not be named among the Ephesians? So Ephesians 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So it is possible to take this passage and to say, don't even talk about these things. Have, you know, in other words, don't use the language of, of sexual immorality. Don't talk about them, have nothing to do with them. And there is a prohibition of language here, and also in verse 4, that is, that we are not to have filthy talk or foolish talk or filthy talk or crude joking, that the Christian guards his lips in this regard. But there's more to it here than just simply not talking about these things in foolish or crude ways. In fact, I think part of our struggle as a church in dealing with things like cohabitation or fornication and adultery is in some sense our failure to speak about them and condemn them for what they are, sins against the sixth commandment. But therefore, this is also a prohibition or primarily a prohibition of action, right? The idea of naming something is not simply saying its name, but trusting and relying on this thing. So for instance, in the ancient world, when you named a god, it wasn't that you just said, you know, Zeus, but actually you named him as your own. You were trusting in him, confident in him, right? That is what you turned to and longed for. And so also in moments of stress and disaster. So also for the Christian, they are named by God in Christ Jesus. They are given the name of God in the waters of holy baptism. They are confident in him and they trust in him. And if their sin is that which is named among them, that which becomes their primary and that in which they seek contentment, well, then that has become their God. So here the condemnation is both, you know, as he'll continue in verse 4, the condemnation of foolish talking, but it is also a condemnation of of sinful actions. I, we have to be, I think, as a church, continue to name these sins as they are, sinful things that need to be, that the Christian puts away because he now walks in this new life. He now walks in love. Ready for question three? Yeah. 
Why is God so often concerned with sexual sins? You can see 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Then read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. What is the result of these sins? I did it again, and I, I'm doing multiple question questions <laughs> here. That's how I, I pack them all in there. We actually, I was talking with the designers, you know, and I said, you know, the fact of the matter is we put these lines in here for people to fill this stuff in, but there's so many questions. The lines are pretty useless. So we're mm-hmm. actually thinking about taking all the lines out so I can put more questions in uh, and then people can just keep answers on a separate sheet of paper. But how will we fit them in? in... (laughs) Well, yeah, we might have to do extended edition. Exactly, right. (laughs) Searching scriptures part one, searching scriptures part two. (laughs) I I do it just to give Andy, you know, help Andy lose his hair. (laughs) What's left of it? (laughs) Okay. Why is God so often concerned with sexual sins? Let's actually go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, and I'm going to throw in there 22, and, and that'll give us some context. St. Paul writes to the Corinthians, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So, Jesus' God's concern for sexual sins are a consequence of these sins being a violation of your body. They are sins against the body. And this also, for the Christian, then becomes a sin against God as the Holy Spirit dwells within the Christian. Your body is not your own. It belongs to another. It belongs to the one who suffered and died for your sins, that you might be his own. He paid a price for your body. And therefore, these sins are of utmost importance and concern to God that we guard ourselves against them. But that's not it. There's more to it as well. Throughout the scriptures, God's language, and as especially as we're going to get to in the last half of this chapter next month, God's understanding of his relationship with his people is that of marriage. In the Old Testament, he regularly describes his life with Israel as a husband and bride. You see this all throughout the prophets. Israel is pictured as a faithless bride whenever she goes out and seeks after other, other gods. He continues this image in the New Testament, as we're going to see in the last after half of chapter five, um, the the Christ and the church, or marriage is a is a picture, a reflection of the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And then finally, in Revelation, we have the church pictured as a bride coming down for the great wedding feast of the Lamb and His bride, and that is who we are. So, when we corrupt marriage. When we commit these sexual sins, we are violating one of the primary images that God uses to describe his relationship with us. And this corruption happens both before, it can be something that happens before marriage and after marriage, right? If you are living in fornication, that is living with someone with whom you're not married and that person is also not married, this is called fornication, that is a sin prior to the marriage vow. And it still offends marriage. It still subverts that picture of marriage, uh, as also adultery, which happens after marriage, a married person sleeping with someone who is not their spouse. So this this is a central metaphor for the church and of primary importance to our God. And so then he says, so then the, the next half of the question is, read Ephesians 5, what is the result of these sins? So Ephesians 5 verses 4 through 8, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
So the, the short answer to that question is the one who lives in, in, in adultery and, and doesn't turn from adulterous ways, who commits these sins, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They are, they are cut off, right? As, G, as the Old Testament pictured so frequently Israel being cut off as a consequence of their sins. So also the one who is sexually immoral is cut off. But there's more to it here as well. I think we need to dig in just briefly into some of this in verse 4, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Filthiness here, the, the word actually connotes shameful talk, speaking of those things that ought to bring you shame. I think this is something we've really lost in our culture when so much of our humor is derived from uh, abuses against the Sixth Commandment. This ought not be funny. It actually is shameful, and we should not be laughing about it. I mean, I'll be honest, it's all over the place. We all kind of struggle with this to one fashion or another. Foolish talk, that's literally morologia, that is moron talk, right? Moron words. Um, (laughs) And here, this, this foolishness, this moronness, is anything that denies God or upholds idolatry, right? Uh, the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God, right? So, and this is closely then tied up also with these sexual sins. And then, of course, crude joking is, is once again returning to this idea of jokes with sexual innuendos. Not, not a blanket prohibition of Christian humor, but a prohibition of that humor, which is something that ought to be shameful to us, that we ought not be speaking. We'll continue with the rest of the questions in just a moment. We are searching the scriptures in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Our guest today, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. All right, let's see. We, we're wrapping up question three. Anything else on question three? Before I, think, we go on? I think we can move on to four. All right. Question number four. Read Ephesians chapter five, verses six through ten. What are empty words? According to St. Paul, to what do these empty words lead? All right. Ephesians 5, 6 through 10. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay. So we have a question here. We're going to answer the question. But the fact of the matter is, you know, my section was getting too long. So we're going to talk about the other verses as well. So don't worry. We're going to get all of it. Empty words are not powerless words, right? These empty words are words used to deceive, right? Let no one deceive you with empty words. Well, what's going on here? Who's the one who deceives? Well, throughout the scripture, there's predominantly one character who does the deceiving, Satan, right? He deceives in the Garden of Eden. He attempts to deceive Christ, right? In fact, 
Satan even uses scripture in his attempt to deceive Christ, right? So he uses empty words. He also uses powerful words in his attempt to deceive, right? And so empty words does not mean powerless words, but rather those words that are without Christ, that do not point us to God in Christ Jesus. Here, St. Paul also talks about these empty words elsewhere throughout his, his books. In his letters to Timothy in particular, he warns against irreverent babble. It's the same word, we just translate it irreverent babble instead of empty words. He says in 1 Timothy 6.20, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And I'm sure many of you know people who have much knowledge and little to say. This would be irreverent babble that does not point us to Christ. Once again, this is the key. The, 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 the powerful words of our Lord Jesus Christ, those words of the gospel point us to Christ and him crucified. He says something similar also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. I included Ooh. that quote just because I wanted to say gangrene on the air. <laughs> it spreads like a disease, right? This irreverent babble, this this speaking with with words that have that, that are just multiply and ha- and don't point us to Christ. It spreads like gangrene and destroys the faith. And this is what it leads to. The second question is the the undermining of faith, right? You become partners with those who who use this irreverent language. Now, a couple of notes here, kind of working through the rest of these verses. Do not become partners with them. This is a word for fellowship. We speak of communion and fellowship in the Lord's Supper. Here he is saying, do not become, have communion and fellowship with those who are of the darkness, right? Who are of this irreverent babble. But instead, he returns to this language of met, of, of walking, right? Walk as children of the light. And as children of the light, what do you do? You try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is an important thing to keep in mind. Christians do love the law of God. The new man in us delights in God's law and wants to study it and wants to know it and wants to follow it, even as we struggle with the old sinful flesh. And and that is what it means to walk as the children of the light. All right. Question five. (laughs) Read Ephesians 5 verses 11 through 14. How does the Christian avoid the works of darkness? How does the Christian expose these works of darkness? Okay, let's read these verses 11 through 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we kind of have two short answers here. What does the Christian, how does the Christian avoid the works of darkness? Well, they expose them. And how do they expose these works of darkness? By shining the light of God's word on them. So let's kind of take a little bit more and talk about this. Once again, we were talking a little bit earlier about this idea of having fellowship. Christians have fellowship with one another. We are united to one another by our fellowship in Christ. And so we avoid the unfruitful works of darkness. We do not have fellowship with those who do not walk in this light. We, we avoid those things. Those works are unfruitful, right? What is the, what is the result of Christian faith, of receiving what Christ has to give? We we live lives of service to one another, to our fellow believers in Christ, and to those even you know our neighbor, whoever it might be. We live in service to them. These are the fruits of faith. Dar- the works of darkness are there. They do things. There are actions, but they are unfruitful. They do not result in that which is, is good and beneficial. You think of, of course, Jesus and the the trees, right? You have a, a rotten tree cannot bear good fruit, right? And and a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, right? What grows out of, out of faith is good fruit. They, Christians 
avoid the works of darkness by shining the light of Christ upon them. And this light is found only in Christ as we study his word, as we dig deeper into it. Now, interesting note here on this last verse, verse 14, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It looks like a quote from the Old Testament, except it's not in the Old Testament anywhere. It's probably, there's a whole bunch of discussion and debate on this, but it's probably some type of liturgical hymn or some type of liturgical response that they they had in the early church at this time, probably some part of their divine service that that St. Paul included in here. It looks like it's based loosely on a passage from Isaiah, but it is probably some type of liturgical response from the early church. It's really kind of neat. Hmm. All right. Question six. Let's go for it. All right. Read Ephesians chapter five, verses 15 to 17. What's the difference between the wise man and the fool? How does the Christian make the best use of the time? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, so in short, we have this comparison and contrast between the wise and the fool. We talked about this a little bit with the kind of foolish talk, moron words, right? He's continuing here this contrast between the way that the Christian walks and the way that the foolish person walks. So, of course, we have references in the old in the Psalms in particular, a couple of references, to the fool says in his heart there is no God. So the fool, the moron, is the one who rejects God and doesn't, doesn't receive what he has to give, whereas the Christian repents of his sin, repents of himself, and trusts in God for, for forgiveness and for life and salvation. And so, therefore, as one who is wise, you don't walk in the unwise. The unwise do the things that he, he described above, right? They, they have foolish talk and coarse joking and sexual immorality and all these type of things. The Christian doesn't walk in that way, but rather they make the best use of the time. Here, I think we could actually translate this also, instead of best use of the time, redeem the time. I really like mm-hmm. that language of redeeming time mm-hmm. as something that could be used in all sorts of different ways, and we redeem it for the work of God in Christ Jesus by living in in accord with, accord with his will. And, uh, and because the days are evil, right? I think this could be a description of every time. We're always tempted to think the days are particularly evil in our own time. But of course, when Paul is writing this, the days were particularly evil for the church as well. And I think all the days are evil in the sense that we continue to struggle against Satan, the world, and our sinful flesh for our entire lives. It's not just going to go away. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised by all the wickedness under the earth. It's just a part of, of living here. And so we redeem the time by living in service to God and the neighbor, by remaining steadfast in his his word and his confession. And then once again, I think he's repeating himself here, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Once again, seeking out, seeking to understand what the will of God is, right? From verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So also that theme continues here. All right. Last question? I think so. Do it. Question seven. Read Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. Rather than walk in drunkenness and debauchery, as the old flesh does, the Christian sings as he walks in the light filled by the Spirit. What is the difference between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? All right, 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, seeking and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I remember being a young kid and probably learning more than I should have when I looked up the word debauchery. (laughs) 
And and I for those of you who who perhaps don't know the meaning, I would just say it's the results of what happens when you get drunk. Too much drinking results in debauchery. And this also is the work of the old sinful flesh. The Christian puts these things away, and instead of walking in drunkenness, I mean you can you can even see that kind of in your head, kind of walking in drunkenness. The Christian skips along in full confidence, certain of where he's going. Right, the drunk the drunk man can't figure out where he's going. Right? You think of the the drunk peasant on the horse that Luther talks about falling off one side of the other of the horse. Right. The Christian knows exactly where he's going. He's confident, walking along, filled with the Spirit, and addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I have to say, this is perhaps a bit of a trick question, because there's really no difference between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So obviously in mind here is the, are the psalms, uh, as we have here this reference to psalm, but the word psalm can also mean other types of singing and hymns as well. And hymn, the word for hymns is also used oftentimes to refer to the psalms in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. It uses that same word. So these words are pretty much used interchangeably. And the point here is, is that as the people of God, we rejoice and we sing together to one another, right? Encourage one another. We also give thanks to God for what he's done for us in our singing of hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. We sing back to God in thanksgiving, but then also encourage and build one another up in these songs. So uh, just an encouragement, and I know that Sarah will appreciate this, to sing as much and as often as possible. This is a good thing, especially in your homes. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is really key. This is a great opportunity for you. Find somebody to help you sing songs in your homes. This is very, very helpful and encouraging for your children and for yourselves to to bring God's word and let it root itself in your heart as you sing these songs together, these hymns that we have in this hymnal. So I know CPH has some great resources. If you struggle to sing, they've got CDs that you can sing along with, all sorts of great things like that. So do this in your homes. That's an encouragement there. Sing boldly. Yes. Nice. How do we find The Lutheran Witness if we don't already subscribe? If you don't already subscribe, go to witness.lcms.org, and there you'll find a page for subscription. You can subscribe either to our email newsletter, which is free, but if you want the print edition, select the other option, and I'll take you to CPH's website where you can subscribe and get it in print. The Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. Thanks so much for searching the scriptures with us this month. Thank you very much. Good to be here. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.